Welcome to this ePulmonology Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We're here today with Dr. Nadia Hansel, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, to talk about inhaled therapy strategies in patients with COPD. ePulmonology Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Actelian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated and Synovian Pharmaceuticals. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss the evidence describing the preferred treatment for symptomatic patients with COPD who have a low risk of exacerbations, describe the evidence for the preferred treatment strategy for patients with gold grade D COPD, and explain the role of supplemental oxygen therapy in patients with COPD. Dr. Hansel has indicated that she has received gifts in kind from Austin Air, consulting fees from GlaxoSmithKline, and has performed contracted research for AstraZeneca and Boehringer Ingelheim Vetmedica GmbH. She has also indicated that there will be no references to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Hansel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Before we get started with our patient scenarios, Doctor, The Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, which goes under the acronym GOLD, publishes guidance to help clinicians manage patients with COPD. Uh, Very briefly, if you would please, explain to us what the GOLD guidelines are. The GOLD guidelines classify patients based on their disease severity into categories A, B, C, or D. These categories are determined by patients' symptoms, as well as their exacerbation history. For example, patients which have minimal or low symptoms, as would be determined by either the CAT score, which is a COPD assessment test, or the MRC, which is a dyspnea scale. So an MRC score of 0 or 1 or CAT score less than 10 would be considered low symptoms. And if that patient also did not have moderate or severe exacerbations in the last year or only one exacerbation that did not lead to a hospitalization, they will be categorized as gold stage A. The gold B patients have symptomatic COPD but no history of exacerbation in the last year leading to hospitalization or only one, whereas the gold grade C participants have low symptoms but have a history of at least two exacerbations or at least one exacerbation leading to a hospital admission. If there's a very symptomatic patient who has an MRC score greater than or equal to 2 or a CAT score greater than or equal to 10 and have a history of moderate and severe exacerbations, at least two or one leading to a hospital admission, then they would be classified as COPD grade D. Now, the GOLD guidelines were recently revised. What's new in GOLD in 2018? The changes for the GOLD guidelines 2018 are minor, and the focus has transitioned from using spirometry to classify severity of disease to more of a symptom and exacerbation risk grading criteria. Thank you, Doctor. Now, let's see how we can translate what we've just talked about, as well as the information you presented in your recent ePulmonology newsletter issue, into clinical practice. So if you would, Dr. Hansel, please start us out with a patient scenario. Here's a patient, a 70-year-old gentleman who has a 32-pack-year smoking history. He has no other comorbidities and overall feels as if he is in good health. 
Recently, however, he complains that he can't keep up with his golfing friends and that he feels that he needs to stop and catch his breath when walking on level ground. He sees his doctor who performs spirometry and he has a post-bronchodilator FEV1 of 70% predicted and his FEV1 to FEC ratio is 60%. He's wondering whether he should start regular inhaler therapy. Using the GOLD guidelines, how would you classify this patient? So this person would most likely fall into gold B grading severity. He has symptoms such as dyspnea where he feels as if he can't catch his breath when walking on a level ground, but he does not report a history of frequent exacerbation. So he falls into gold B COPD. For this patient, would you consider regular inhaler therapy? What do the guidelines say? So the current guidelines recommend that when you have symptomatic COPD, or GOLD Group B, that this is a time with persistent symptoms to initiate a long-acting bronchodilator. This could either be treatment with a long-acting beta agonist or a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. Either a long-acting muscarinic agonist or a long-acting beta agonist, a LAMA or a LABA. What's the benefit of choosing one over the other? That's a great question. Current guidelines do not recommend one class of long-acting bronchodilator over another for initial relief of symptoms in this group of patients. The risk profile is actually quite similar whether you choose a LABA or a LAMA medication. There are a few things, though, that you could consider in your choice of starting a LABA or a LAMA. For example, if the patient had a recent exacerbation, there was a New England Journal of Medicine study that showed that teotropium, or the LAMA, had a 17% reduction in its exacerbation risk compared to LABA therapy. So for patients with persistent breathlessness on monotherapy, the use of two bronchodilators is actually recommended. However, you always want to minimize risk. So if the addition of a second bronchodilator does not improve symptoms, we suggest that treatment could be stepped down again to a single bronchodilator. Treatment with a bronchodilator, would you expect that to change this patient's prognosis or change his progressive lung function decline? That's another great question. There have been several studies that have tried to evaluate whether a bronchodilator can change the progression of lung function decline, and I can summarize them for you briefly. There was the UPLIFT trial, which tested whether teotropium, which is a LAMA, reduced lung function decline, but it did not reach statistical significance in terms of reducing the rate of lung function loss. In post-hoc analysis, however, it reduced the rate of post-bronchodilator FEV1 decline in a subgroup of patients with an FEV1 between 50 and 70%. There was also a following study looking at teotropium in gold stage 1 and 2 patients with COPD based on spirometry, which showed an association with a reduction in post, but not pre-bronchodilator FEV1 decline. When looking at similar studies at whether inhaled corticosteroid and LABA combination reduced FEV1 decline, it shows perhaps mild change in the trajectory. For example, in the TORT study, inhaled corticosteroid LABA combination reduced the rate of FEV1 decline by 16 cc's per year versus placebo. And in the summit trial, once daily inhaled corticosteroid and LABA combination was associated with an 8cc change in lung function decline. These results are suggestive overall, 
But whether early intervention with a LABA or inhaled corticosteroid LABA therapy alter the long-term course of COPD really remains an open question. Adding an inhaled steroid, an ICS, to a LABA or a LAMA, what's the current thinking on that? So the role of inhaled corticosteroids in COPD has been a long-standing debate. Escalation of therapy to an ICS in addition to a LABA or LAMA or LABA-LAMA combination therapy suggests that the triple therapy with an inhaled corticosteroid LABA and LAMA is more effective at preventing exacerbations than dual bronchodilator therapy alone. And this was seen in the tribute trial. Interestingly, there are also a couple categories of patients in which I would particularly consider inhaled corticosteroid therapy. One example is in patients with asthma COPD overlap syndrome because it's been shown in patients with asthma that LABA therapy alone may increase risk of asthma morbidity. Therefore, in patients where you think that they may also have a concomitant diagnosis of asthma in addition to COPD, I would strongly consider adding an inhaled corticosteroid regimen for those patients. In addition, studies have suggested in post-hoc analysis that inhaled corticosteroid therapy may be effective or most effective in patients with COPD who also have eosinophil levels greater than 2% or have a history of chronic bronchitis. So in those subgroups of patients, those with chronic bronchitis or elevated peripheral eosinophilia, and more importantly, in those with asthma, COPD overlap syndrome, I think the addition of inhaled corticosteroid should be considered, even for gold stage B disease. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Nadia Hansel in just a moment. This is Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the Pulmonology Review. ePulmonology Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to clinicians treating patients with pulmonary conditions. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion like the one you're listening to now is available to help translate that new clinical information into practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. A subscription to ePulmonology Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe and receive ePulmonology Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.epulmonologyreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this ePulmonology Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We've been speaking with Dr. Nadia Hansel from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine about how the inhaled strategies for COPD that she reviewed in her newsletter issue can translate into improved clinical practice. So to continue in that vein, doctor, please bring us another patient scenario. A 60-year-old woman with a diagnosis of COPD. She's a former smoker with a 30-pack year smoking history. She last saw a pulmonologist one year ago after being hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation. She has no other comorbidities, but her lung function shows severe obstruction with an FEV1 of 45% predicted and an FEV1 to FVC ratio of 50%. After hospital discharge one year ago, she was started on ICS and LABA combination therapy. 
After starting on regular inhaler therapy, she reported improved quality of life and exercise tolerance. However, she continued to complain of daily cough and phlegm production and shortness of breath with exertion. Furthermore, she still had two exacerbations in the last year which required ED visits. She would like to know whether there is anything that can be done to her medical management to reduce her risk of future exacerbations. Changing her medications to reduce her risk of exacerbations, that's certainly a reasonable request. How would you respond, doctor? What medicines would you choose? I think there are two options. There was the FLAME trial, which showed that a LABA-LAMA combination is actually more effective at reducing exacerbations than an ICS-LABA combination. In addition, very recently was the publication of the Trilogy study, which showed that triple therapy with ICS-LABA and the addition of LAMA had a rate of moderate to severe exacerbations that was 23% lower than those that were treated with ICS-LABA combination alone. The differences, if you would please, between LABA-LAMA therapy versus ICS plus LABA plus LAMA therapy. So as I mentioned in the previous case scenario, there are some specific subgroups in which I would consider inhaled corticosteroids, such as those with the asthma COPD overlap syndrome. But in addition, the TRIBUTE trial showed that triple therapy with ICS LABA-LAMA reduced the risk further of exacerbations by 15% compared to the LABA-LAMA therapy. There was also an improvement in lung function and quality of life, even though there was no change in the frequency of need for rescue medication or short-acting beta agonist use. There was also no significant difference in adverse events, including no increase in pneumonia risk or cardiovascular events. Are there any specific factors that might predict how patients will respond to any of these medications you've been discussing? So in the FLAME trial, which was the trial comparing the LABA-LAMA comparison to the inhaled corticosteroid LABA comparison, there was no difference in post-hoc subgroup analysis. However, in the TRIBUTE trial, where they looked at whether triple therapy with ICS LABA-LAMA was better than LABA-LAMA therapy without inhaled corticosteroids, those that either had chronic bronchitis or peripheral eosinophil level greater than 2% showed an increased benefit from the addition of inhaled corticosteroid compared to the LABA-LAMA group alone. Alternative treatment choices. What might clinicians consider? Roflumilast and azithromycin have both been studied as add-on therapies. Roflumilast with a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor has been shown that if you have chronic bronchitis, which is a usual cough, in patients with severe very COPD and an FEV1 less than 50% predicted that it may reduce your risk of future exacerbation. It has not been shown to be effective in patients without a history of chronic bronchitis. It is also important to monitor for weight loss, diarrhea, or mood disturbances. Azithromycin has also been evaluated as an additional therapy for the treatment of patients with COPD and a history of exacerbations. It has been shown to be most effective in patients who have quit smoking, and similar to roflumilast, there is suggestion to monitor for side effects. Specifically, with azithromycin, you should monitor hearing as well as QTC prolongation by EKG. There have been several studies 
that have investigated the effects of biologics for the treatment of COPD. In particular, there have been recent studies that looked at the effect of anti-IL-5 therapies for the treatment of patients with COPD and eosinophilia. These results are encouraging, and it is left to be seen whether biologics will be a therapeutic option for COPD in the future. Doctor, this patient you presented us with, a 60-year-old woman with COPD and two exacerbations in the past year, what treatment was she given and how did she respond? So after her last consultation, she was started on triple therapy, an inhaled corticosteroid, LABA, and LAMA. She was very pleased with this change in her medical regimen and over the next year did not report any exacerbations. However, she still continues to complain of dyspnea on exertion or shortness of breath with activity. Her physician performed an ambulatory oxygen saturation test in the office and noted a resting oxygen saturation of 92% on room air. With ambulation, her oxygen saturations decreased to 86% on room air, and she is wondering whether she should start supplemental oxygen therapy. That's an interesting question. In your opinion, Dr. Hansel, is supplemental oxygen therapy likely to improve her life expectancy? Supplemental oxygen is definitely recommended for people with severe hypoxemia. That is, people that have an oxygen saturation less than 88% or a PaO2 of less than 55 milligrams of mercury at rest. However, in this patient, her oxygen saturation is 92% at rest, and she only desaturates with exertion. There was a recent study that actually shows no mortality benefit with supplemental oxygen in those with resting oxygen saturations between 89 and 93% at rest, or in those that have only desaturation with exercise as long as the oxygen levels remain greater than 80% on room air. Well, longevity aside, uh, are there other benefits you might receive from supplemental oxygen therapy? That's a great question. As I mentioned, there's been no mortality benefit shown in the study. Interestingly, there was also no difference in all-cause or COPD-related hospitalization rates. There was also no change in quality of life, anxiety, depression, lung function, or distance walked in six minutes or other measures of functional status. Despite this largely negative study, the immediate effects of oxygen on symptoms or exercise performance were not assessed. In addition, it is important to note that stable oxygen saturations at sea level does not exclude the possibility of hypoxemia during air travel. And therefore, if patients are planning to take a trip abroad or an airplane flight, they should consult their physician. What about other non-pharmacological approaches that might improve her outcomes? Pulmonary rehabilitation and exercise are definitely to be considered in patients that have severe COPD, and data from pulmonary rehabilitation studies have definitely shown that acute pulmonary rehabilitation programs can improve patients' quality of life and exercise endurance. It is also important to consider that patients receive adequate nutrition, particularly in patients with cachexia or emphysema. It is also very important to ensure that patients receive their flu vaccination as well as appropriate pneumococcal vaccination. Though our patient had already quit smoking, it is important to reassess smoking status in patients and continue to encourage smoking abstinence as 
Smoking cessation has definitely been shown to be the most effective strategy to improve outcomes in patients with COPD. There are also, in select patients, potential surgical interventions such as lung volume reduction surgery that can be considered in the select patients with severe emphysema. Thank you, Dr. Hansel, for today's cases and discussion. Let me ask you one more question now, and that's about the future of therapeutic strategies in the treatment of COPD. What do you see as being needed to further improve outcomes? Well, the field of COPD should move towards personalized medicine, and we need to continue to do a better job at understanding which patients or which groups of patients will respond better to specific therapy. Already, we know that patients with chronic bronchitis but not emphysema are likely to respond to reflumolast treatment. Former smokers compared to current smokers may be more likely to respond to azithromycin therapy. And patients that have peripheral eosinophilia may or may not respond better to inhaled corticosteroid therapy and may respond to biologics such as mepolizumab. However, together, we need to continue to make advances in the strategies for the treatment of COPD and better delineate which patients may respond better to a particular therapy. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the evidence describing the preferred treatment for symptomatic patients with COPD who have a low risk of exacerbations. Doctor? So we were reviewing the GOLD guideline recommendations from 2018, which divide patients into four grades of COPD severity, A, B, C, or D, based on their symptomatology as well as their exacerbation risk. Patients that do not have frequent exacerbations or who report zero or one exacerbation that did not lead to a hospital admission could be categorized into gold A or B. And A would be those that have few symptoms and gold B patients would be those that have more symptoms or an MMRC greater than or equal to two or a CAT score greater than or equal to 10. In this category of gold B COPD, Current recommendation guidelines recommend treatment with a long-acting bronchodilator, a LABA or LAMA therapy, or in those that have more persistent symptoms, combination therapy with a LAMA and LABA. And our second learning objective, the evidence for the preferred treatment strategy for patients with gold grade D COPD. Now, when you look at patients that actually have frequent exacerbations or greater than or equal to two exacerbations or at least one that's led to a hospital admission in the last year, then they will fall under gold grade C or D with the gold C patients having fewer symptoms and the gold D patients having that history of exacerbation as well as being more symptomatic. Again, an MMRC of greater than or equal to two or a CAT score greater than or equal to 10. So for these patients that have fallen into the group D category, there are three recent trials that help guide our therapy and informed the gold criteria. These are the FLAME trial, which showed that a LABA-LAMA or dual bronchodilator therapy is better than ICS-LABA therapy at reducing exacerbation risk. 
Similarly, the trilogy study showed that triple therapy, including ICS and LAMA plus LABA, is better than the ICS LABA alone at reducing exacerbation risk. And then more recently, the tribute trial, which showed that the ICS LABA LAMA triple combination therapy was actually better than the LABA LAMA dual therapy for the reduction of exacerbation risk. So, in your most severe patients, triple therapy with ICS LABA LAMA may be the preferred treatment of choice. And finally, the role of supplemental oxygen therapy in patients with COPD. So, in patients with COPD, we have to think of the best therapeutic medication strategy, but we also need to think about non-pharmacologic approaches for the treatment of patients with COPD. We talked about pulmonary rehabilitation and vaccination and appropriate nutrition, but also the role of supplemental oxygen therapy in patients with hypoxemia is important to consider. As mentioned, it is well established that in patients with severe hypoxemia or resting oxygen saturation less than 88% that supplemental oxygen is indicated. Recent study, however, shows that supplemental oxygen therapy in patients with more mild or moderate hypoxemia, such as resting saturations of 89 to 93% on room air or desaturation only with exercise but maintaining above 80%, that in these patients, supplemental oxygen showed no clear medical benefit compared to those not receiving supplemental oxygen therapy. Dr. Nadia Hansel from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this ePulmonology Review podcast. You are very welcome. It was a great pleasure to be here with you today. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.epulmonologyreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the ePulmonology Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review, certified for CME and CE credit, and emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with pulmonary conditions. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive ePulmonology Review via email, please go to our website, www.epulmonologyreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. 
ePulmonology Review is supported by educational grants from Italian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated and Synovian Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.